0: Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The word of the Lord reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. What do you get a billionaire for his birthday? I mean, if you think about it, I was once invited to a house of someone who I knew was really wealthy, and you're supposed to give them a gift, and the thought kind of crosses your mind. What do you get someone who has everything? What do you get a billionaire? What do you get a millionaire or, or, or above that for, that for that matter? What do you get someone who essentially has everything? You think of Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. What would you get him for his birthday? <laughs> I'd give him a card. I could write a nice card. <laughs> How much does that mean to them? But even further, what do you give to the God who needs Nothing what do you give to God who needs nothing? I was reminded, and it always comes to my mind, is that I was reading through the book of Job one time, I think for seminary. And I think this was the first time I encountered the full story of Job in just one sitting, just kind of seeing from start to end. And I was reading the book of all that happened to Job from from the very beginning and how he was suffering and suffering and suffering from start to finish. And I was kind of I was Kind of relating with Job, I'm like, Yeah, why is this happening? Like, this is, this is tough. And I remember thinking in my mind, Wow, okay, he, he wants to speak to God. Like, what is God's response to this? What will God say to a man who didn't, maybe in our eyes, deserve any of that which happened to him? What would God's response be to all of the hardships, to the trials that Job faced, a righteous man, as it says? What would God's response be to that? I, I was ready to hear the verdict. Yeah, yeah, what, what is that? You know, I was at the point, I'm like, Hey, Okay, this, this is, I need an explanation. Why would a righteous man suffer so much? And then I got to Job 38. And I'm going to read a few verses from Job 38 and 39. And it really answered my question. Job 38, verse 4. After Job saying, Let, let me have my day, let me have my time in trial, I must see. What is God's response to this? And then God responds. Job 38 verse 4. God says to him, Job, my words. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? He says in chapter 39, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, Job? (laughs) Stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command, Job, that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? In other words, Job... Do you say to the morning, "Be morning"? Do you give the command to the birds to fly? Can you tell the seas and the currents to 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 roll over and foam and to break? Can you tell the sun to shine its light? Can you tell the moon to come forth? Did you create anything in this earth, Job? What do you have to say to me? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Like that's that's our God. In other words, God is sovereign. He owns everything. He owns everyone. There is nothing that happens outside of his hand. And he says to Job, in the midst of all this confusion, let me first start you off here. I am God, Job. I do whatever I please. I sit on my throne and you are not God. This is our God. What do you give to this God? What do we offer to this great God? He is a great God, amen? Our God is sovereign. We just sung about this great God. What do we give to the God who owns everything, who knows everything, and to whom everything belongs? What do you give to him? Let me ask a question. Do you love him? Do you love him? Let me ask another question. Do you love him as you ought? Do you love him at all? What do you give to him? He doesn't need anything, but what God does demand, he demands your heart. He demands you. And not because he's an angry or stubborn God, please don't hear that, but because he is almighty God and he owns everything. So what is it that he wants? He wants you. He wants your love. He wants your affections. He wants your desires. He wants your life. He wants all of you. This passage we read in Deuteronomy 6, it's been said about this, this whole passage we just read, that this is the expression of the essence of all of God's person and purposes. That this passage is the expression of the essence of all of God's person and his purposes. In other words, if you really want to boil down all and sum up all the Old Testament, all that God wants and all that God desire, all of his purposes, all of his persons. If you want to boil it down, here's the grain of it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. There are three directions that must describe your devotion to God. Three directions that must describe your devotion to God. And the first direction is right there in verse 4. The first word, hear. Hear. It's, it's the first word in the passage here, to hear. And when he says here, as, he, as he's Introducing the commands that God has given Israel, He's saying, "Hear, O Israel! Hear, O Israel! Here," He said this multiple times already, and He's saying it here, here. And it's not just saying just to audibly, just listen, if you will, or just hear with your ear. But this is this idea of hearing is to hear in in a way that results in doing. It's hearing in a way that results in doing. It's to hear God without putting in, without, in a sense, putting into effect the command and to place it into every aspect of your life. It's to hear in such a way that it really impacts what you do and what you say. And actually, this word here, here, is the Hebrew word for Shema, which you may be familiar with the Shema. To Jews, actually, even present day, they, they hold the Shema, this passage we just read. This is the Shema, they understand that this is what God really commanded Israel at the heart of it, that they chant this, they, they have this written on their, on their, on, in the boxes they place in their hands and their forehead, that this is the Shema, this is what they understand, this is what God required, them, required for them as a Jewish people. That this is a very important passage to Jews. But here, even for us, we realize that this is not just for Jews, but this is for believers because it's in the word of God. So so Moses begins with this first imperative, Imperative, it's the, the command, the main command here in this section is to hear, oh Israel, to heed what I'm doing. No, just listen, but heed it in such a way that it impacts what you do. Because let's give a little context to kind of fill this out. Already from chapters 1 through 5 that Moses is here kind of giving a rehashing of the whole history of Israel. This is what God has done for you all the way in the past. Now, right there in this message here, they're listening to Moses saying, hear, O Israel. He's, he's recounting for them, preparing them to enter into the promised land because they're staying here. And right there, and if you look at verse chapter 6, verse 1, he says, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments with the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you go over to possess it. So he's already preparing them that you are going to head over to the promised land. Right here, this is the second generation of Israel that's heading to the promised land. The first generation has died. They've already been died and gone in the wilderness. And now Moses is preparing them to enter into the land that their fathers and their forefathers looked forward to, the promised land. He's saying here, before you enter that land, this is what I want you to know. Second generation, your father saw this, your grandfather saw this, but now kids, if you will. This is what I want you to hear. He's addressing Israel right here in the plains of Moab. They're waiting to go into that promised land. And Moses, through this whole book of Deuteronomy, is giving this one last plea to Israel. Israel, if you will get anything from what I've said, if you will get anything from your whole life, if there is one thing I want you to understand, Israel, is I want you to hear this message. This is what you must hear so that it will go well for you when you enter the promised land. Because if you do not heed this message, it won't go well. So, so far already, Moses recounted verses, or chapters 1 through 5, they've been delivered through slavery, he says, that you were once in Pharaoh's arms, and yet God, sovereign God, brought you out of Pharaoh's hands. You've conquered in battles. You've been fed by God in the wilderness, through manna, through honey, all these things. You've been fed by him. He's provided for you. You've beheld his glory on the mountain from afar. When God gave Moses the, the, the commandments, the 10 commandments, they saw the glory of God from the mountain. They saw this almighty God. You, you saw all these things of God. He recounts God's faithfulness and God's commitment to the covenant that he made with them as a people. That you, Israel, are God's people. You're his special people. And so now he exhorts the people of Israel to respond with the sheer love and obedience to him. And he begins with this imperative, the main imperative here, the main command, hear what I'm going to say. This is what I command. Listen, heed it, apply it to your life, apply it to everything you do, that if you want to survive, if you want to live long, if you want to be successful, hear, O Israel, now, keep in mind, if you go back chapter 5, verse 22, Israel did not want to hear the voice of God because they heard and saw God's glory and they're afraid. Just look, look real briefly, chapter 5, verse 22. Moses is recounting for them that these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud and of the thick gloom, with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, hear what they said, behold, the Lord, our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now their response, then why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? This is important. Verse 27. So now they tell Moses, go, go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you and we will hear and do it. So you see what happened that they saw the glory of God that when God revealed himself to Moses and gave him the tablets and they saw what God speaks with man. And yet man can still live this Holy God. We've beheld. He can speak and man will not die. And yet I don't want to hear anymore. Moses, you go, you go hear what God says, go hear what he says and tell us and then we'll do it. So they didn't want to hear the voice of God. They said, Moses, you go tell us what God says and we'll do it. And here, Moses giving them essentially what they asked for. Now hear, O Israel. This is not from Moses' mouth. This is not from Chris's mouth. This is from the mouth of God. Hear, O Berean. Hear, Arroyo Grande. Hear, Central Coast. This is what our God has. And this is what we need to hear. We need to heed it. We need to apply it. That this still applies for us. That the heart and extent of these commands that we'll read here, that this is true for God's people today. This is true for the New Testament church to love God, but not just to love God, but to love him truly. To love God truly. This really paints a picture for us of the true love for God. That true love for God is not divorced from action. That if we say, if you say that you love God, is it exemplified in what you do? So what are we to hear? What do we heed? What must we listen to? This is the almighty God. He abhors nominal Christianity. God abhors nominal Christianity. What do I mean by that? That it's just a Christianity that is professed with the mouth, but not lived out in daily life. That a life that says they follow Christ, they're like Christ Christian And yet their life does not look like Christ. And just like Moses wanted Israel to hear, if you say you love God, if you say your heart is for him, your life should follow course. And for us, if we love God, if we say we've been transformed by God's grace, our life should be evidenced with grace. First direction, hear, 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 heed it. Second direction is to love God exclusively, to love God exclusively. So, so, so what exactly does, does it Moses want us to hear? Look at verse four as we continue on. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, I think it's very interesting how he begins this exhortation, right? He's preparing them. Now, hear, heed the voice of the Lord. This is what you must heed. This is what you must listen to. This is what you must apply. And how does he begin that exhortation? Not with the command. He doesn't begin with, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, now obey all the Ten Commandments. That's not what he says. Hear, O Israel, love your neighbor as your son. No, no, that's not how he begins. He begins it with, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. He starts with God himself. He starts with giving us a taste of who is this great God? What is this God that we are worshiping? He doesn't begin with what you are to do, what you are applying to put into practice, but he really puts into their head, who is this God? And he says, the Lord is is our God. The Lord is one. He starts with who their God is. Yahweh, literally, if you notice all caps, Lord, is our God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh one. And really what he's getting at here is the ex- exclusivity of Yahweh in serving God. That in other words, you are to serve him only. Because look how he kind of ends it right there. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one, right? One. I think one typical way we understand this idea of, of, of God being one is we typically understand it as, oh, one. In other words, we have one God, you yeah, have three persons, right? He's one, right? And that's, that's one appropriate way of understanding it. But I don't think that's what Moses is getting at. He is not necessarily describing the essence of the deity, of Godhead. He's not saying God is one, as in one and one and three persons that we understand it this way. That is one way. But let me well, work with me here. I think what he's getting at here is not just saying the essence of who God is but he's describing the oneness in terms of who they are to love and to worship. So you can understand it this way. You can say the Lord is our God is one Lord, right? One God, one God in three persons, or Yahweh is our God is the one and only Yahweh. That one is not necessarily used as a numeral, but one as an adjective if you will. That Yahweh is our God and Yahweh alone I think one way we can understand that is the context itself. That are all sandwiched throughout this whole passage. He has already established the fact that he is the only God you're supposed to worship. So when you go into the land, don't be tempted to go and follow and worship other gods. But no, he's saying, this is the only God you are to worship. So he begins the, this admonition, he begins this exhortation by saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Yahweh is our God. The covenant God, he is our God, and Yahweh alone. Don't be tempted to go after these other gods. Don't be tempted to follow false gods but realize Yahweh alone is our God that God alone only God and no matter which understanding you take one commentator said this way and I quote that the ideas clearly overlap to provide an unmistakable basis for monotheistic faith that the Lord is indeed a unity but beyond that he is the only God This really builds off everything Moses has said so far. He's delivered them from Egypt. God's delivered them from Egypt, from the Amorites, all the battles, leading them before the promised land from where they are right now. And because Yahweh alone is their God, here is how they are to love Yahweh exclusively. That if you love him, you are to love him exclusively. And yet to love any other gods or any other things is not to love God Truly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The reaction to all that Moses has said and to, to who God is must not lay dormant on their hearts. Because he says, how are you to love God? How are you to respond with this faithful love? Three areas, he says, with your heart, with your soul and with your might. I mean, very, very quickly, the heart, it's referring to the, the, the intellect and, and the will. It's, it's to love him fully with rationality and with deliberate purpose. It, the heart has been said, it's like the bedrock of a man, that the, the heart is the anchor of a soul, that really what's in his heart is really the essence of the man. So to love him with your intellect, with your will, with your rationality, with your deliberate purposes, really love him there but also with your soul, with your being, your inner person. This includes your desires, your inclinations, that love him with your desires, love him with your inclinations, love him with your thinking, love him with your intentions, love him with your will, but also that love him with your might, which is your activity, your labor, that the work that you do, the physicality, all of that. You love him with your heart. With your soul, with your might. In other words, Moses is saying here this is the wholeness or totality of a man. Love him with everything. An infinite God demands total commitment. This is exclusive commitment, and, is, and this is the only commitment, really, essentially. That if you were to love God fully, you're to love him truly. You're to love him with your thinking, with your mind, with your heart, with your emotions, with your inclinations, with your working, with your doing, with your going, with your coming in, with everything. That everything in your life should be manifested because it's love that you have for God. And he's saying to Israel, Israel, if this is the case for you, you are to heed, you are to, this is what you're to heed, this is what you're to follow, that you should love God and love him with everything. This commandment's not unfamiliar to us. Jesus himself essentially alluded to this, did he not? Mark 12, 30. He says that. The foremost, when they ask, what is the foremost of the commandments? What is the the highest of the laws, if you will? He says, hear, O Israel. Jesus speaking, Mark 12, 30. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. And Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus, new covenant. What is the greatest? That you shall love God with everything in your life. That there's nothing Excluded from that. No exceptions. That if you love Christ, Jesus is saying that this is the greatest one. He points back here. You are to love God with everything. What's also interesting here in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is you see here, he's using you a lot, right? You, you notice know, you, you, you. You shall do this, you shall do this, you shall do this. And you would expect that you to be kind of a, a plural sense. That you all are to love God. Like Moses is speaking to the whole Israelites, right? He's speaking before them. And so you would expect to be like, in other words, y'all should love God, right? Y'all should follow him, right? All of you, you all. And yet the you is singular in this passage. Because Moses is speaking to a whole nation of people. But here, this is important for the most independent person in the audience there, that you are to love God. 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 This corporate commandment is to be applied individually. That each individual person, you are to love God with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength. You are to apply these things. He's speaking to each individual. That if we say we love God with all our heart, then we must love him with all of our life. I think it's important for us to remember that just like Israel... Their love was in response to God's covenant love that he showed them. That they weren't just to manufacture this kind of love, but their love for God was in response to his covenant love for them. Because if you remember time and time again, Moses reminds them, even in Deuteronomy, like there's nothing great about you, Israel. Like you guys weren't fantastic at all. Like you were small, in fact. So you weren't even great in number. Like there was nothing pretty about you. (laughs) Like, like, Like you were nothing. And yet God Loved you out of all the other nations of the earth. He chose to love you. He made a covenant with you. Now love him truly, fully, with everything. He didn't have to love Israel, but he did. He initiated his love. He pursued them in love. He secured them in love. And this love, which is tied to his covenant, is unable to be broken or changed. And the appropriate response to this love is to love him wholeheartedly heartedly. And I think sometimes when we talk about love for God, especially in today's American church. Yeah, I know there's one God. I know there's a God. He's probably the only God in heaven. I believe in the Bible. I attend church. I love God, yeah. That we view love as just kind of these external kind of tangent things in our life. Like, yeah, that is a part. Yeah, there's a a part in my schedule for this. There's a part in my money for this. I I give this. I give kind of a a section of my tithing. Yeah, I make it mark off there and I give that. I do all these things. Yeah, I love God. But love means more than that. That love God is not just a checklist. Making sure God has a, a piece of the pie. (laughs) <laughs> like he has this percentage and my work has this percentage and my home life has this percentage and the kids sports this percentage. No, 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 no. God owns the entire pie that if we love God, he says, no, no, give me the entire pie. I want it all. So that when you're at work, when you're giving your money and your home and your family life and everything you do, everything that is done in those aspects is filtered out through the love of God. So it dictates how you do that, how you spend in this, how you respond in this. It, it really infiltrates every aspect of the believer's life. That love means my mind and my heart have been transformed by the infinite love of God in such a way that every single facet of my life is in conformity with that profession. So we see to love God is to see him as he truly is. To live in accordance with who he is, so that if he truly is God alone, then everything we do falls in submission to him. And the truth is, when we truly love God, when we do love God and we see him in the glory and the splendor of of his awesomeness and of, of his greatness, then we can no longer love the things that he hates. Radical love means radical obedience. That to love him with your mind, to love him with your soul, to love him with your strength. I mean, to love him wholeheartedly, to love him in that, in that way means there must be radical obedience And not just as a way of of works righteousness that I'm obeying because I have to, but this obedience stems from the love that consumes the man, that consumes his heart, it consumes his life, it consumes his emotions, it consumes everything of him. And so therefore, because it consumes the man, that it naturally produces obedience. So not only do we hear and we love God exclusively, but third direction, we obey God wholeheartedly. The direction to truly and exclusively love God is intrinsically connected to obeying him. The one theologian said it this way, that those those who believe, or in other words, I can put it, those who love God, obey God. He's really dealing with the issue of obedience and salvation. That those who believe, obey. Those who obey, believe. That they both go hand in hand. I think that's simply what Moses kind of naturally progresses to. As he, as he starts with understanding who God is, this is our God. He alone is our God. Now love him as our God alone. And now how does that look in your daily life? How do we obey God? The answer is wholeheartedly. Verse 6, he commands them that these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. They shall be on your heart. And we can stop and ask, what does it mean that, that these words shall be On your heart. How do I know if it's on my heart? In other words, all the statutes and laws, the commandments that I've repeated to you, Moses, saying all this, all that I've given to you, they should not only be heard and done, but be meditated upon. That they shall be on your heart. They should be impressed upon your heart. That you shall meditate on them. Think upon them. Reflect upon them. That as David says, that your word I have meditated upon so that I may not sin against you. That the God's word is not just to be heard and not to be done, but we are to reflect upon God's word. Reflect upon who he is. That this should be upon my heart so that the meditation of my heart reflects that. John Calvin said it this way about the heart, that it refers to the the memory and other faculties of the mind, that because this is a great treasure, they should keep it on their minds so that it never escapes. It's an important remembrance for them because they realize in order for them to be faithfully obedient to the law and the commandments that God was giving them, they had to constantly reflect upon it, bring it into their mind, chew upon it as a, as a cow chews upon the cud, constantly think about it and meditating so that's on their heart so that when they go about their daily life, they're living it out. That it's not just something they understand and do every, once a week at temple, but no, this is something that really manifests Constantly throughout their day, that they're thinking about the word of God. They're chewing upon it, that it's on their heart. That God's law was to be chiseled on their heart. And I also think it's interesting that when God is always giving these exhortations and commands, it wasn't as if God's image was to be on their heart, but God's word. That his word was their high priority. That because it's his word, once you see it truly in his word, you can behold him truly as he is. That his word was to be the important priority in their life. That they were to manifest and to true upon the word of God. I think it's a good question for us is that if you want to know what's on your heart, let me ask, then what do you think about and meditate upon most often? What do you constantly think about? What is the constant meditation of your heart? What maybe keeps you up at night? What do you think about? No one sees the heart. No one knows the meditations of your heart. Or what rolls through your head. I mean, we've all had the illustration of a husband who tells his wife, I love you, and yet does nothing to express that love. That what we say to the husband who says he loves his wife and yet does not spend time with her, does not seek to make her happy, does not seek to, 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 to serve her and to love her. Does that husband truly love his wife? We know the answer to that. It's no. That if you love, then live it out. If you love me, then show me. How is it that you love me? What is it that you do? What is it that you say? What are you thinking about? Do you think about me? Are you mindful of me? And that's simply what Moses is giving here for Israel. Israel, understand, if you say you love God, then live it out. Is he your only God? Do you meditate on his word? Do you love his word? Do you think about him? Do you seek to honor him? Is your life infiltrated with the word and commandments that I'm giving to you? They were to obey this word, obey this law wholeheartedly. They shall be on your heart and press it on your heart. And how were they to do this? They obey him wholeheartedly in two arenas at home. And outside the home. They obey him wholeheartedly at home and outside the home. Let's first look at it at home. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This is in daily life. That if this is how you obey God, if, if you love him, he's saying, if, if you want to obey him, then this is what you do. You teach these words, I'm telling you, diligently to your children. You teach them as you go about, as you come in, as you're going about your daily life. This is a daily aspect of your life. This is a normal ritual. But look how he begins this command. He says to teach them diligently. It literally means to repeat But not just mere repetition where you're just repeating the the law of the word. Okay, love God, love God, love God. No, but it means to repeat it in such a way that impresses it upon the child's heart. That you're to teach diligently to your kids about God. Teach teach diligently to them about the words I'm given to you. Impress it and inscribe it on their heart. Don't just suggest it. One commentator said this way that it would mean that they should cause it to penetrate their mind and thoughts as though they would prick them with the point of a sword. In other words, he's saying here, that as you go about your daily life, I want you to take the word of God and impress it upon your child's heart in such a way that it pricks them like a sword would prick. That it should transform their hearts, their lives. That's the daily and routine aspect of your life where you are taking the word of God and you are transforming and applying it to their life in such a way that transforms their life, that you want to transform their heart, that you're chiseling off the unnecessary granite in order to make a beautiful scripture, in other words. I think one way is that the blessing here he's really giving them is generational obedience. That if they, if, they were to be, if they were to truly live out this command and to apply it and teach it to their children, to diligently teach it to their children, what would happen? As you go into the promised land, as you have kids, if you were to diligently teach it to them, they would follow suit and they would obey and they would do the same thing to their children. And thus... Remain in God's blessings and thus remain in the land. That this is for they're good. That if you really want to live this out, teach it to your children to see this is the great God that we serve. He is the same God who brought us out of slavery, who brought us here to this place. Now here, this, he is good, he is worthy, and he is lovely. And now, child, here, I want you to take this and not just take it and hear it so I repeat it and repeat it. But I want you to take it and I want you to apply it to your own heart so that you love God with your whole heart, with your whole life and with everything that you are, so that you can continue to be blessed and under God's good care. It's not just a simple works of righteousness that you're doing this so that you can earn God's favor, but he's saying, no, no, no. First, look at who God is. Look at his greatness. Look at his glory. Look at his salvation. And therefore, be transformed by his love and live it out. That ultimately, this command to teach diligently is to really Bring down the word to them in simple, simple terms. That you really want to transform their hearts. That in parenting, our goal is not just to get them to repeat back what we say, although there is a point in time, where essentially, that's all you really can do. <laughs> but that's not the end goal. Our end goal is not just so they can repeat the right things. The end goal is so that those things that they're repeating transform their hearts. That they realize the issues of their hearts from a very young age can be addressed in the greatness of God. That we just don't want to transform and to, and to make them behave, but we want them to have a hearts that love God and are obedient to God, that we are to teach diligently to them. Where does the ultimate responsibility lie in this? The new Testament picks up on the same idea, teaching them diligently I want to take this moment here. I want to speak to the fathers, all of us. You know what Paul says for us in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's, it's worth noting here that when Paul gives that instruction to New Testament Christians, the Ephesian church, he's speaking to the fathers. That fathers, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That this prime responsibility for your children to be raised up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord rests upon the shoulders of the Father. That the fathers are called to teach their kids, to show them about the word of God, to show them about the glory of Christ, to show them about his goodness. And they are to instruct their children. They are to raise them up. Now, of course, women or the, the mothers spend most time with their children at home. But the ultimate responsibility, fathers, rest upon us that we are to raise our kids in the instruction and the fear of the Lord. We are to show them about God through our example. But also through our teaching. Our teaching in a way that's not just teaching just to tell them. But teaching that wants to tell them so they can be transformed. You, should t- you shall teach them why you, when you sit down in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, in all aspects, when you're sitting, when you're rising, when you're walking, when you're not walking. In other words, these are just daily tangible moments of your life when you're driving in the car, when you're going on the way to to, to sports practice, when you're coming home, when you're sitting at the dinner table before you're going to bed, while you're brushing your teeth. There are rich moments, fathers, parents, for us to be diligently teaching our children about the greatness of God. That from a young age, they know in this household, Jesus is big. That Jesus changes. He transforms lives. I'm relying upon this Christ that I'm professing. And let me show you how that works. Even in your small life. That this is how Jesus is great. That we model it. In daily life. So not only do we obey him wholeheartedly in the home. Let's look at the second aspect. Obey him wholeheartedly outside the home. Verses 8 through 9 reads that you shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, the law was to permeate every aspect of their everyday life. Because look how he kind of describes each different, different area. He says on your hand, on your forehead, on your door, doorpost, and on your gates. Now really here, if he's saying that the law should be bound on your hand, if you will, That everything your hand does day to day out, when your transactions, when you're working, whatever you're doing with your hand, with your actions, the law was to govern how you act and what you do when you're acting. That that, that, the, the very essence of your life and practicality in daily life was to be informed by the instruction of God. So when you do business, when you treat your brother, when you're doing whatever you're doing with your hands, with your walking, that the law of God really dictates how you do that. So if you're at work when you're working, you're working hardly as unto the Lord. That the reason why you're working this hard is because you want to please your Lord. And that dictates how you do it and the attitude in which you do it. So the law was to be bound to your hand because you should remember that what you do in daily life should be governed by the goodness and the, the, the word of the God. But not only that, their foreheads. The front lens on your foreheads, literally between the eyes, that it should govern their thoughts and their actions. So this law not only only governs and and impacts what you do, but this law really governs what you're thinking, what you're planning. That let this word be shaped and transformed in how you think and what you do. It should be between your eyes, your thoughts, your decisions. How often are, are, are even big decisions in our life, small decisions, but even big decisions, how much do we think about what does God's word have to say about this decision I'm making? If I'm moving and deciding to move, deciding to buy a house, a car, even smaller things, how often do I reflect about what does God's word have to say about what this decision I'm going to make? What does God's word have to say about this action I'm getting ready to do, this transaction I'm going to do? Is it between my eyes, so to speak? Is it in my thoughts and my decisions? He even mentioned that they should write it on the doorposts and gates. At that point, it seems a little excessive. <laughs> on the doorposts and the gates? Okay, on my hands, my forehead? Now, doorposts and gates? What was the purpose of that? It's important for us to understand, especially in this time, that the city gates were a central part Of the cities. And so that when the gate of a city was possessed, in other words, that's poetic in saying that whole city was possessed. If you had that city's doorpost, if you had that city's gate, you got that whole city. I mean, we see this example in Genesis 22, verse 17, and also Genesis 24, verse 60. When God says to Abraham, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. That to possess the gate, to possess the, 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 the post, in other words, to possess the entire nation, to possess the whole city. So when God is saying here to, to bind it on your hand and your frontlets and then also in what you're doing, he's also saying put it on your doorpost so everyone knows that this house has been seized by God. That this house is in the possession of Almighty God. So, everything that is done in this house, in this household, and outside this household is governed by God. That this should govern everything your possessions, your doing, your going, your coming in. So, put, mount it on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This obedience looks like it's not just impacting their daily life, but also. Where they're coming from, that their homes, their city was to be a castle, if you will, of the living God. The sincere command was to be taken to heart. He says that these commands I'm commanding you shall be where? On your heart. Unfortunately, in time it came with literal compliance. That people looked at these commands, the Jews looked at these commands, bind it on your hand, blind it on your forehead. And you know what some of them did even to this day? I used to work in L.A. and I would drive around um, kind of Hollywood areas and I would see kind of the quarters where the Hasidic Jews are still living. And you would see some of them, they still have what's called the phylacteries. That they would put boxes on their hands and mount it to their hand. And inside those boxes would be the Shema and other passages of the Old Testament. Because they said, bind it on your hand. Put it on your forehead. In religious ceremonies, they bind it on their forehead. That they're literally living this out. And yet, they missed the point. Because from the beginning of time, the point was not for you just to physically display that you love God. But to live it out with what you're doing. What you're thinking. What you're loving. What you're possessing with your home live it out that you can't write this on your heart literally I mean Moses was clearly speaking in the figurative sense that you are to love God with your whole heart I mean think about Proverbs 3:3: that when he talks about the law write them on the tablet of your heart they're not speaking literally no let it possess your heart let your heart be consumed with this It's a figurative way expressing the centrality of the covenant to everyday life. That if this is true of you, that if you love God, then your whole life is consumed with this. This was to be upon their heart, impressed upon their heart, chiseled on their heart. So that what they do and say and how they live is governed by that very truth. The sad reality we even know looking ahead is that they still didn't honor him as such. That Israel fell short in this. That even after seeing the goodness of God through testimony after testimony, being led by God, being provided with everything they need by God's hand, and yet they walked away and were disobedient to this very fundamental command that was given to them to love God with all you are. It as if Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That we can give any amount of words. We can say until we turn blue how much we love God and and we serve him and he's first in our life. And yet if it's not manifest in what we do and how we structure and live our life, do we even really mean that? could Jesus say to me that he says he loves me with his lips, but his heart is far from me? We know the sad result of Israel's disobedience. I think, in fact, Moses anticipated their disobedience, even after giving this command. He anticipated their hard-heartedness. If you go Flip over a couple chapters, Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's talking about a new covenant that's coming. And he even tells them after all these things, it's like, choose this day whom you'll serve. That if if you choose to obey, the blessings will come your way. And if you disobey, curses will come your way. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, and he says after this, that if you choose to disobey, that curses will come. He says after this, verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God and obey with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your if outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from, the, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. Verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So if you do these things, this restoration will be promised to you. I will bless you. If you turn back, I already anticipating you probably won't follow, but if you turn back, I will bless you. But most importantly, verse six, moreover, the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. He's already alluding to a new covenant that is coming. The new covenant that promises to circumcise the heart. In Ezekiel's way that I will give you, take out from you as a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That what you really need is a circumcised heart. That we cannot love God in our own strength. We cannot pull up our own, ourselves by our own bootstraps. We cannot do this ourselves. And Moses here is pointing them to the new covenant that says one day, even in your disobedience, I will circumcise your heart that there's a day coming that he will circumcise the heart so that all the promises given to them will be fulfilled but for us even for New Testament Christians this is the covenant that we stand that God he gave us a new heart he took out the heart of stone he gave us a new flesh so that we can love God as he requires that we're not doing this in our own strength brothers and sisters when God calls us to be obedient to love him wholeheartedly he is not calling you okay I need to do better this week I need to to make some changes here he's not calling you to do that He's calling you to fall flat on your face before Christ and realize your insufficiency and cling to him and cling to his grace so that you can respond in the love he requires. Rest upon him. This work is the work that he's done and he's done in Christ for you. And so don't ever hear this message and think, okay, I need to be better this week. No, no, hear this. I need to look to that great Christ. I need my eyes fixed upon the author and the perfecter of my faith. That's where my eyes need to be. And let me, God, cling Cleanse me and remove the, the, the impurities in my heart and in my life and let me, God, serve you. I give you everything, God. This new covenant he pointed toward. This covenant which we stand, believers. This is how he does it. This is how he accomplishes it. That he circumcises our hearts. He gives us a new heart, a new life. I mean, look at the picture in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive in Christ. But God made you alive. You were dead in your sins. You weren't dying. You weren't drowning. You were dead. You drowned. He made you alive. He gave you a heart so that you can love him with your heart, with your soul, with your might. So if you're here this morning, maybe if you don't even know the Lord, maybe your profession of the Lord was not even sincere. I don't know. The temptation would be to hear this is, okay, if if I want to be a Christian, I just need to change some things in my life. But hear this. You can't just join the church. You got to be born in to the church. That turn to the Christ who changes the heart. That realize that Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That salvation is through other name, no other name than Christ. That to look upon your sin and then behold the Savior who promises to take away the sin of anyone who would turn to me and believe in me as Lord and Savior. That this love for God does not begin with our own doing. This love for God begins being transformed by the spirit of God, by the gift of grace that he offers to anyone who would receive it. That receive this gift of salvation, receive this gift that's been secured in Christ, this gift that we've we've been talked about since the beginning of this morning, that Christ is the one who accomplished our salvation. And he commands and demands all people to repent and to believe in him. But also, believer, This is what God desires for us. Believer, do you love Christ? Do you love Him perfectly? Do you even love Him as you should? I'll ask again. This is not just a call for us just to do better, but this is a call for us to surrender to Him fully. This is a call for us to ask Him to give us and to weed out all that which keeps from loving Him wholeheartedly and exclusively and clinging to Him completely. Believer, look to Christ. I think the temptation that Israel had is that is, 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 the Moses says right after this passage that when you go into the land and you see all the fruits and when you see all the successes, don't be tempted to turn to other gods. That, that when you experience the goodness of God, the temptation is to look away from the God who saved you. But believer, turn back to the God of your salvation. Turn back to Christ. Let me point you in the same way. Look to the Christ who saved you. Look to his love. Look to his unchanging love that's secured upon his work. Believer, look to this great Christ. Your loving obedience to Christ begins with Christ's love for you. Look to the Christ who changed you. Look to the Christ who saved you. Look to the Christ who sustains you. And surrender to this Christ with full submission giving everything let this word be upon your heart this morning that of all the meditations of your heart realize your insufficiency to love God in your own strength but your sufficiency lies alone in Christ cling to him the Lord our God is our God alone. He is the only living God. So, love for God is obedience. Love for God is holiness. To love man is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So, hear O'Brien, brothers and sisters, love him exclusively, obey him wholeheartedly. Hear this message. All other love, is just mere lip service. So may we surrender to this Christ. May we look upon these commands that He's given to us here in Scripture and may they be impressed upon your heart to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I realize the temptation for us is to fall back upon our own works, to fall back upon our own sufficiency. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to the end of our sufficiency, you bring us to the end of our ropes so that we would see you as our all in all. Lord, I pray you would be exalted and high in our lives, that we would love you with everything we are, with everything we do, with everything we say. Lord, you can transform us by the power of your word through the work of your spirit. I pray that you would refine us, that you would mold us, and you would make us to be vessels of your glory and of your goodness. Thank you for the gift of salvation that gives us a heart that can obey you. And Lord, I pray that we would do that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.